Hello, this is Randy Moon, and welcome to the Holiday Moons Podcast, where we share our love for the holidays with you year-round. This is Sydney, and I will be talking about the origins of water parks. This is Cole, and I'm going to be talking about the hush today. This is Beth, and I will be talking about bumblebees. Very fun summer topics. We have lots of fun holiday happenings as well. Yesterday, Beth and I went to a Christmas in July craft show at a place we hadn't ever been before as far as the craft show location. It was down in Fredericksburg, Virginia, and first time we'd ever been to this uh, association's craft show. So um, that was a fun idea, uh, but it was a lot smaller than we were expecting it to be. For the location. And the traffic was horrendous. <laughs> yeah, it's so and hard I mean to move around down there. Horrendous. It's near I-95 and all the little side streets are all packed. So it was pretty rough. But it was a fun day. It was nice to see Christmas and Halloween crafts at the craft show. Then we went out to eat, which was Beth's favorite part. Yeah, the craft show wasn't. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> it was there were some there were some things in there, but it was it was very small and yeah. we walked out without buying one thing. Yes. So. But it's a great idea. It's I don't a good see idea. many other craft shows that focus on Christmas in July in the Virginia area where we are, so that's too bad. Yeah. Um, I like your idea though if they would accept feedback about, you know, making it bigger, taking it maybe to Dulles to yeah. Dulles Expo Center, making it a bigger event. Um, it's easier to get in and out of too. So you said they had Halloween stuff. Yeah. So, so they had Halloween in July. Funny because next month is Halloween season. <laughs> Beginning in August. Beginning in August. Yeah. Right. Is, is officially Halloween. And Disney. For Disney and Cole. Yes. That's right. true. Absolutely true. Because everyone wants to start thinking about fall in August. That's probably true. That yeah. is <laughs> true. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Also, while I was looking at Facebook yesterday, I saw that my brother Dave was at the Maine Renaissance Festival. Maine thought, being the state, not like the one, <laughs> the prim- one, the the one, one. primary renaissance. It's the main one, Cole. It's the main one. <laughs> it could be the main one. I don't know. I don't know. It All I know is that it's the state. Yeah. The state of Maine. But I thought that was fun and probably a lot cooler up there. Oh my goodness. Lucky. Lucky yes. guy. And the interesting thing, I thought, oh, well, we're thinking about going to Maine in August. So I thought, I wonder how long that festival goes. Just two weekends. <laughs> this yeah. weekend, next weekend, and they're done. Yeah. It's like, oh, well, I think too they bad. move pretty regularly, don't they? They don't. Stay it's not the same place. people. Um, I mean, there are people that move around, but like, um, Renaissance festivals can go for like eight weeks. I mean, oh, okay. Uh, yeah. But that was all pre-COVID, so right now I don't know that that's oh, true. Yeah. yeah, gotcha. That was different. Um, so we're also seeing, to Cole's point, uh, places have their Halloween and fall things out. We were at Hobby Lobby last weekend. I think Sydney was at Michael's this weekend. They had their fall things out. Not on sale yet. No, for Hobby Lobby, you always wait for the 40% off. Hobby Lobby's awesome. Um, they have the 40% off sale really regularly. When we got there, they were just putting the fall stuff up. I mean, it was just nothing was moved yet. They were just putting right. it all on the on the shelves. No 40% off yet, so... That was a no-go for me. Yeah. yeah. But Cracker Barrel does have its Halloween little kiosk area starting to set up. Sydney pointed that out to me the other day. Yep. And as I've been um, looking at the fall stuff that has made me um, think about what I want to do for Christmas cards this year. So normally I don't do Christmas cards, but now that I have Noel and um, I have my own place, I want to do Christmas cards. Fall Since fall is my favorite season... I've been holding off deciding what pictures I might want to put on it and starting and I've started to plan like a fall little photo shoot idea in my head for Noel, um, which involves um, looking up like I found some plaid bandanas that go over the collar that are really cute and frayed at the edges. And, That's cute. Um, so different stuff like that that I've been planning and thinking ahead. Um, because that's just really fun for me <laughs> yeah. to think about. Yeah, and then last weekend, we were able to go to a water park, my uh, roommate girlfriend and I. Um, I had mentioned that we were planning it. Uh, we did finally get to head over there. It was about an hour away. It was actually pretty close to the place where I went to college. Um, so the the route was pretty familiar to me. Um, yeah, yeah, so we it was a... Nice day for the most part, 
most of the water park was inside. Um, there was some that was outside. Uh, it was a little chilly and windy for a lot of the time when we were outside. Uh, and it was one of those water parks that have like the large water slides that go up. And you grab like a um, tube, essentially, like a one-person, two-person tube. And you walk up like the metal like scaffolding around it. And the metal scaffolding kind of goes up, um, you know, to a little... It's, it's like normal handrail height. Um, so you're up there pretty pretty high. And like if you look down, you can see through the floor yep. down to this. So if you have fear of heights, yeah, um, not recommended. I don't have like a bad fear of heights or anything. But it like triggered me because I think it was because I was holding this big thing too. And the wind was coming really hard. So it felt like I was being blown <laughs> off the side of yeah. uh, this water slide, but um, it was still it was still a lot of fun. They had um, like they had a wave pool, hot tubs, um, big slides inside. I think we went on those more because it was a little warmer inside. Um, lazy river, lazy river. Yeah, they had a lazy river too. We went on that uh, a good bit. Um, they also have one of those. Like large jungle gym esque uh, things where you could like walk across oh. rope bridges and that was designed to be for all ages, not just for oh, okay. kids. And then is that the kind of place where they can shoot water at you from random? Yeah, locations? they can shoot water. There's like buckets that fill up and then yes. dump, and there's like one big bucket, of course, that fills up and then dumps yes. a huge deluge on one spot. Um, it got. Uh, we were just walking through the three of us and my girlfriend and I didn't notice that the bucket was there um, but she was like just a little behind me and my roommate my roommate uh, like had noticed it so he like looked around and he said uh, Kelia stop to her and she like froze and she was like what and then the bucket like <laughs> <laughs> All came down right on top of her. Oh my goodness! Oh um, so that was that was funny. It was it was a good time. We must have spent um, about five six hours there. Oh wow! Okay, something like that. We spent we spent a good amount of time. Well, we each paid I think about fifty five bucks oh, okay. for the whole thing. Yeah. So we had packed lunches ahead of time, and you could go out and then back in. Okay, that's so, good. Yeah. Um, we were we didn't have to worry about getting the expensive food that was there. Was it open a little later in the evening as well? I am not sure what okay. time it closed. Um, we left before closing. Okay. Because um, we got there soon after it opened. Um, but that was really fun. It was great to... Because obviously with COVID, something like a water park was not viable at all. For a long time. Um, yeah, because yeah, a water park's not even something that you can do with a mask because you're going to be waterboarding yourself yep. <laughs> right, yeah. if you, you know, you've got something fabric over your face. But no, yeah, it was, a, it was a really good time and it was fun to get out and do something like that that was very clearly a kind of a post-COVID activity. Were there a lot of people there? Yeah, yeah, there were a lot of people there. Um, it wasn't so crowded that... Like, you felt like you couldn't breathe, or there were, like, super long lines for everything. Right. Um, but there were enough that you definitely felt like it was a, uh, f- like, flourishing yeah. Business. business. Yeah. Oh, good. I always wondered where water parks came from. <laughs> really? Well, you're in luck. Why? Sydney? Well, I was curious about that myself. <laughs> so... And mom and dad, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't ever remember going to a water park. We went um, to water but park. I was curious. What? I'm pretty sure we went to a water park. Yeah, you you did. It just depends on what the size that you're talking about mm-hmm. is. And also, you know, the things that you block out of your um, childhood memories. You know. You, yeah, right. kids don't remember so many things that you do with them. <laughs> I have I have some memories of going to water. Is someone parks. feeling salty? <laughs> it may uh, 
it may have been like a fun experience for some and a traumatic experience for Sydney. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, I was curious how water parks developed, as it is like a staple, at least in the United States, for family vacation, summer fun, and such. So, um, it's actually a relatively recent concept. It wasn't until after World War II that they became popular, but they evolved rapidly in the last few decades from simple places of amusement to complex parks that compete for status symbols such as largest water park or tallest water slide, uh, or I guess most creative. They also have themes. Um, so where was the first water slide built? So in the late 1940s, when the country uh, was recovering from World War II and began to contemplate more fun um, as normal life resumed, which, you know, call back to um, years ago when Dad talked about on the podcast the evolution of um, vacations in mm-hmm. America. Many outdoor pools had existed already, but only a few had diving boards. Even fewer had slides. However, by the late 1940s, more pools began to integrate slides and even began to include water being incorporated into the slides to ease movement down towards the pool. Now, if you don't know, back then, slides were like made of metal, right? Mm-hmm. So, Well, I remember. That's what we grew up on <laughs> in the playgrounds, like, too. You burn your legs going down. Yes. Hot slides. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, and these were, again, and, and back then, they didn't have like covers for the slides. It wasn't like a little tube. Um, it was just bare to the sun. So that the idea of putting water... Uh, combining water with the slide was a, a really ingenious idea. Although it is often seen as the beginning of water parks, the water slide appeared to have first developed in New Zealand during 1906 International Exhibition, which I thought was interesting. Um, there could be earlier versions of such slides, but New Zealand slide was the first to attract major attention. And the ex- exhibition called... Um, Wonderland, a chute was installed that allowed swimmers to slide right into the pool. The chute moved people down in a wooden ramp that allowed them to briefly skim across the surface of the water as it came in a slight angle. In fact, <laughs> like a skipping uh, stone. What? Like a skipping stone. Yes. Yes, exactly. So apparently, um, the slides, and I saw a picture of it, used to just like. I'm not even sure, but they finally came up with the idea of um, having people skip across the water or dump right into the water. Um, In some cases, they they learned how to, um, or they thought up the idea to have like a shallow water. And then, um, you know, for people who don't want to dive in deep. So this slide that was first seen in New Zealand was so popular that in 1906, even government officials of New Zealand were impressed and gave the slide a try. <laughs> That's <laughs> funny. So it, it described it as like, um, along with screaming girls, um, you can see like uh, the uh, like different House of Representatives like on these slides. So in the 1910s and 1920s, similar slides were created, with most being featured at fairs and special summer events. Perhaps the first documented water slide in the United States was in Minnesota, created by furniture maker Herbert Sellner, S-E-L-L-N-E-R, in 1923. He created a water toboggan slide that would have riders go on a wooden sled and then slide into the water, skimming the surface in a similar manner as the New Zealand slide. It was given a patent and um, later influenced the water slide design. In fact, similar slides were being built throughout the late 1920s, and few parks in the United States began having slides built in them. So 
So water slides were not the main feature in all of these cases, but just one feature among other mostly land-based amusements. Most of the slides were based on Selner's original design, but soon some began to do away with the sled. Allowed one to go to the top and get on a sled or simple or simply go down without a sled and then get off at a slight angle towards the water. So George, so what was the first water park? George Millet, who famously founded SeaWorld in San Diego and later Florida, took the idea of the water slides and increasingly noticed in the 1960s and 1970s that pools began to incorporate splash pads and even the first wave pool opening in Alabama have proven to be major attractions. People often wanted to enjoy the water without having to get directly deep into the water. Water slides also became popular within existing parks, so much so that um, long lines were always evident. All of these ideas gave Millet the idea that a purpose-built water park might be enough to be profitable. He needed a warm year-round place to have such a park to keep revenue steady. So where do you think he uh, decided to host it? Florida. San Diego. Florida is correct. As Orlando, Florida already hosted well-known amusement locations, uh, took advantage of existing tourist market and had weather that Millet needed. This allowed um, what would be called Wet n' Wild to be founded there as the first purpose-built water park in 1977. And this is interesting. When it first opened, the first year proved to be disappointing, losing about 600000 which is wow. a lot for back then. Yeah. Um, however, Millet did not fret. And again, he, this is the guy who created SeaWorld. So, you know, he this wasn't his only um, idea. And from the second year, it began to make a profit, never looking back. The wave pool and its large water slides became key features in the park. Although the park closed in 2016, it became the blueprint for most other parks in the United States, Europe, South America, and Asia. So regarding modern trends of water parks, water parks were great for southern regions, but northern regions, in particular those um, regions that are very cold, struggled to build water parks that could attract enough profits and continue to have new tourists come to them throughout the year. Given such challenges, the first indoor water park was built in um, Edmonton, Alberta in 1985. And this soon proved successful, inspiring other locations, including the UK, to create their own indoor water parks. In 1994, the first significant indoor water park built in the United States was in Wisconsin Dells at the Polynesian Resort Hotel. The success of indoor water parks made business investors realize that water parks incorporated, incorporated within hotels and indoor resorts allowed places to extend the tourist season. The Great Wolf Resorts or the Great Wolf Lodge developed as the first company to build hotels around indoor water parks. And actually I know a lot of people who still, you know, go to Great Wolf Lodge, and that's still a booming business to this day. Nice. Yeah. Other innovations included developing a faster water slide design, uh, new types of water features, including tube rides with mountain crafts, and large rafts that would be sent hurtling down long large themed slides. Water parks continue to be very popular and they are now found perhaps in over 100 countries. Water parks have also proven to be great economic engines for communities, generating tourist revenue in economically disadvantaged areas. Water parks have also generated new forms of tourism within year-round indoor water parks, hotels, and resorts built around water parks, and new amusement attractions incorporated in areas that feature water parks. Although water parks have come a long way from the first water slides, the core of, 
The core thrill of combining speed, water, and excitement has allowed water slides and water parks to be highly successful. Yeah, they definitely have. They definitely have grown over time. Now they have like water parks on cruise ships, right? That are part tubes, and they have the surfing machines and the slides and everything, um, which are really cool. I know even Disney thought about putting in a wave machine in the Seven Seas Lagoon, that big um, pond lake between uh, the transportation center and magic kingdom um, oh. when they put the polynesian in they actually wanted because that's a man-made lake so before they put the water in um, they decided to try out a wave machine where they could actually create waves big enough to surf on from the lake over towards the polynesian but the, there were some problems one the wave machine was so good at, at what it did that the beach just constantly eroded they wanted to have you know sandy beaches that were also man-made but the beach uh, sand kept being pulled out because of the waves and then the machinery kept breaking down of course it's underwater not easy to maintain so they ended up not doing it for very long at all but um the other problem that they didn't um probably think about at the time was just Alligators. Alligators. I, that's what I'm sitting here thinking. I'm like, who's going to surf in alligator-infested water? And you motivate know you to get on that wave. <laughs> and you know there's all kinds of alligators yeah. in there. Yeah. It's Florida. Yeah, but that, yeah, water parks are definitely a neat idea, especially in the hot areas, or if you can do it indoors, like the like you said with the Great Wolf Lodges. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I mean, it's always impressive. Um, to see and I really also like the idea of like the lazy river and things like that so like more calm activities as well as exciting thrills right so and you know there are regular like community pools now that incorporate some of the water park features I know yeah. when we lived in Purcellville Franklin Park built a swimming pool and it had a lot of different water slides and um, it had yeah. that big mushroom that, that dumped water onto kids and it had, um, Oh my gosh. They had a, at the water park we went to, they had a mushroom. Um, and the, the mushrooms are designed to dump water, like kind yeah. of umbrella like over mm -hmm. the sides. Yeah. And the pressure on it was like super high. Like it was a lot of weight of that water. And I just like put it on the back of my shoulders and it felt so good. Like if you're. <laughs> Uh, if you get like a massage, yeah, ex it's, <laughs> that's exactly what it was like. Like if you carry stress in your shoulders, or generally they're just sore. Going and just like standing there for Under like the... five or ten minutes. <laughs> what was that called when you um, they build like a zero to what's right? Um, I don't. Yeah, the the Percival one that you talked about had a zero entry where you basically walk in like a a beach, and right. we, our kids were very little at the time, which was perfect for them. To be yeah. able to walk in and kind of get to their section of things that yep. were not too deep for them. That right. was great. Knee deep. The bad part is when your daughter has um, swim lessons and your son's not, two years younger, isn't supposed to go into the zero entry water. But it's right there. <laughs> but it's right there. Obviously, yeah. Yes. So, but yes, it was, a. they had little slides, age appropriate. Yeah, they smaller had, buckets that would dump on you not the humongous ones right yeah i mean not the if you're a little kid it's gonna knock your face <laughs> yes, first right. into the water right so but it was pretty big and so it was a really nice park yes. we went there a lot yeah was, with the kids great a lot of fun yeah. yeah um which some of us have no memories of right yeah just okay. pictures right yeah. pictures and videos yeah that's right i have i have vague memories of running around water parks but not yeah um I think we not probably, too much that's concrete. As a teenager, I think we went to Hershey Park a couple of times with the teens. Sydney may not have gone. That may be why she doesn't remember. Uh, but we went there to those water parks. Yeah. Um, Does that sound like something you would have done, Sydney? Opted out? Um, I think I didn't go to some. I do actually. Now that you mentioned, I remember going to Hershey Park as a family, and uh, we went like. The first ride that we went on, yeah. which was not very smart of us, was this water ride, and it dumped so much water on us that, was, like, I remember my lips turning blue. And I think we have pictures of it. It was a it was a roller coaster. It was called the water the roller soaker. Yes. But they told us, oh, you don't get very wet. 
is why we went the first time. You don't get very wet. Yeah, well, I remember I was looking up stuff about the park. I was little at the time, and I was super excited to go on this ride for whatever reason. Yeah. It was yes. like the thing I was most excited yes. about. Yes. And you're, you had jean shorts on, and it was really yeah. hard to keep those up. We ended up having to buy you um, swim trunks. Yeah. yeah. Basically, because... a, new, a new set of clothes because they're soaked. Yeah. They're called yeah. jorts. Swim shorts. <laughs> <laughs> First of all. Uh. So here at Holiday Moons, obviously, we talk about a lot of things that are generally surrounding holidays. Fall into that broad category. Uh, we talk a lot about um, events and seasons and um, sometimes movies. <laughs> you are still bitter about me talking about the Penguins of Madagascar, which, plug, I, plug for it, it's an awesome movie, go I watch it. I <laughs> was just having difficulty understanding how that pertained to our <laughs> our topic of, uh, of something holiday or festival or season related. It, it, it relates to everything, Cole. There's a way. Uh, where there's a will, there's a way. Um, so, generally speaking, would you guys say... Now, I have a... Um, I don't want to say a, a bias in this question, but my field of study was generally the... Um, in college, was generally the, the culture and history of what you'd think of as um, the, the Middle East, dark al-Islam spreading from kind of Morocco to Indonesia. Um, so I'm familiar with uh, most of these terms. Would you say that the Hajj is something that, um, as not being your field of study, you've heard of before? I would say I'm more familiar with um, the journey to Mecca, like calling it the Hajj, not as much. Okay, so the the term itself, but you're familiar with the fact that there is a pilgrimage. Exactly. Is the, in the Muslim faith to, to Mecca. Mecca. Right. That's yeah. That's very familiar to me. That mm -hmm. part of it. What about you, uh, Sydney and Dad? Um, I'm along the same lines of mo as Mom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm familiar with both. Okay, so you're familiar. So if I said if I said the name, you would yeah. know generally what that did yeah. mean. Mm -hmm. um, so for those of you who don't know, the Hajj spelled H-A-J-J, uh, -J, um, like um, both of the Eids that I talked about before, the spelling does change depending on where you are in the world because uh, it is a very diverse group of countries that are generally predominantly uh, Muslim. Um, it's also spelled H-A-D-J-D-J, -D -J, uh, or H-A-D-J, which is kind of, H-A-D-J is kind of the pronunciation, um, Hajj. And that's where, that's the, when you say the word, that's the, that's the spelling that occurs in my head, H-A-D-J. Yeah. Um, but H-A-J-J is uh, generally what you hear the most because um, the Gen the world of Islam generally centers around uh, the Arabic language because the original Quran was written in Arabic. Right. But it is the pilgrimage to the holy city of Mecca in Saudi Arabia. Um, it's on the western side of Saudi Arabia, near the um, also holy city of Medina. So... Every adult Muslim must make at least once in his or her lifetime a pilgrimage to Mecca in the Muslim faith. It's one of the five pillars of Islam. The pilgrimage right, begins on the seventh day of Dhu al-Hijjah, the last month of the Islamic year, and ends on the twelfth day. I talked about the Eid and how it relates to the Hajj. So the Hajj has actually already happened this year. but it is incumbent on all Muslims who are physically and financially able to make the pilgrimage, but only if their absence will not place hardships on their family. A person can perform it by proxy, appointing a friend or relative to go on the pilgrimage to stand in for him or her. Um, the pattern of the pilgrimage rites were established by the Prophet Muhammad, but variations have arisen from it, and the stringent formal itinerary is not strictly adhered to by the mass of pilgrims who frequently visit other Meccan sites out of their proper order. 
When the pilgrimage is about six miles from Mecca, um, the individual enters the state of holiness and purity, known as Iram, and dons the Iram garments. Uh, for men, they consist of two white seamless sheets that are wrapped around the body, while women may wear sewn clothes. Uh, Muslims cut neither their hair nor their nails until the pilgrimage is over, and they enter Mecca and walk seven times around the sacred shrine called the Kaaba in the Great Mosque and kiss or touch the black stone. Are you familiar with what the Kaaba is? I'm not. Um, have you ever seen pictures? It looks like a large black stone square at the center of this big mosque. Um, I'll, I will show you an image of it here. Sydney, you may have to look On yourself. Yeah, yep. That's really neat. It is, uh, generally the mosque has a, uh, like a huge courtyard in the middle. And the Kaaba is a, um, is an ornate black square structure in the middle. And there's just masses of people walking around it all in, in unison together. Um, so when you, when you see, I encourage you to look up, uh, like a video of it, um, because it is quite uh it is quite a sight to see in person uh, about two million people perform the hajj each year and the rite serves as a unifying force in islam by bringing followers of the diverse backgrounds together in a religious celebration once a believer has completed the pilgrimage he or she may add the title of hajj or haji or haja to his or her name oh. the pilgrimage if performed properly, is believed to wipe out the previous sins for the sincere believer. In Islamic tradition, the pilgrimage was introduced during the time of the prophet Ibrahim. Abraham. Mm -hmm. And by God's command, Ibrahim left his wife, Hajira, and his son, Ishmael, alone in the desert of ancient Mecca with little food and water that they soon used up. Mecca was at that time an uninhabited place. And in search of water, Hajira desperately ran seven times between the two hills of Safa and Marwa, but found none. Back in despair to Ishmael, she saw the baby scratching the ground with his leg and a water fountain was underneath. Because of the presence of water, tribes started to settle in Mecca, Jurhum being the first such tribe to arrive. When grown up, Ishmael married in the tribe and started to live with them. The Quran states that Ibrahim, along with his son Ishmael, raised the foundations of a house that is identified by most commentators as the Kaaba. After the placing of the black stone in the eastern corner of the Kaaba, Ibrahim received a revelation in which Allah told him that he should now go and proclaim the pilgrimage to mankind. The present pattern of the Hajj was established by the Islamic prophet Muhammad, who made reforms to the pre-Islamic pilgrimage of the pagan Arabs. Mecca was conquered by the Muslims in 630 CE, and at that time Muhammad destroyed all of the pagan idols and consecrated the building to Allah. The next year, at the direction of Muhammad, Abu Bakr led 300 Muslims to the pilgrimage in Mecca, where Ali, a follower of Muhammad, delivered a sermon stipulating the new rites of the Hajj and condemning the pagan rites. He especially declared that no unbeliever, pagan, or naked man would be allowed to circumbobulate the Kaaba from the next year. In 632 CE, shortly before his death, Muhammad performed his only and last pilgrimage with a number of his followers and taught them the rites of the Hajj and the manners of performing them. In the plain of Arafat, he delivered a famous speech known as the Farewell Sermon to those who were present there. From then, the Hajj became one of the five pillars of Islam and was made compulsory to all who were able. Interesting. Um, so there is a lot of... The Hajj is interesting because... A lot of the history of the expansion of Islam comes from um, this 
pilgrimage because it was a it was an opportunity for traders to set up routes along the Hajj. It was an opportunity for rulers of powerful states to interact with each other in a way from across the world to interact with each other in a way um, that they weren't really able to before. Um, in fact, uh, there's a, there's a famous story of the richest man in history was named Mansa Musa, and he was the king of Mali in Africa. Uh, and he, it had been recently converted to Islam. And Mansa Musa was so rich because Mali was the center of um, gold production in the world. So with inflation and figuring out how much gold he had, um, Mansa Musa had a rough net worth of about 12 trillion US dollars. So on his Hajj, one of the one of the other principles of, uh, of Islam is charity. Um, so on the Hajj, Mansa Musa took so much gold with him. Uh, and in Cairo in particular, he gave away so much gold that it caused decades of inflation, <laughs> of like major inflation in yeah. Egypt. There's a lot of different stories similar to that in the course uh, of the Hajj. Obviously, it's an extremely holy time for for Muslims, and um, Muslims who are able will often take multiple Hajjas. Um, the wealthy may take it every year if they're able to, or uh, offer someone who isn't the means to take it themselves. Oh, that's a good idea. So this has this has um, very real economic and political right. ramifications, as well as a personal journey. Right. And it is, for a lot of people, it is a personal journey. But right. for the course of history, it has been an extremely important economic, um, political, diplomatic mechanism for progress and expansion and um, often peace in uh, the Muslim world. I'll talk a little bit more about um, the modern Hajj and what that means for Muslims today in a couple of weeks. Um, but that is some, some background on what it is and its significance in the course of how it relates to the Eids that I talked about before and Islam as a whole. Normally I have a snazzy transition. <laughs> Such as this one. <laughs> Like, hmm, thinking about this, I wonder if there were bumblebees on the journey to Mecca. We did talk about how there was um, honey-making traditions that went back. That's true. To the Middle East. That's so, true. So um, that were would be least, the honeybees. There were at least bees. That's right. That's right. But I'm here today to talk about the bumblebee, one of my favorites, if I have a favorite bee. One of Sydney's least favorites, because it is a bee. It is, that's right, just because it exists in bee form. So That's about right. Bumblebees belong to the same family that includes honeybees, carpenter bees, cuckoo bees, digger bees, so and orchid bees. They belong to the same family as all those bees? Yes. Is the family bees? <laughs> um, I'm going to say yes. <laughs> It's the genus Bombus, so the family is Pepidae. That doesn't sound flattering. It doesn't, The no. genus Bombus. Right, I wouldn't want to be part of that genus. <laughs> Are you a Bombus? No. Are you? You're a Bombus. Okay, so... Bumblebees are important pollinators of wild flowering plants and crops, and as general foragers, they do not depend on any one flower type. However, some plants do rely on bumblebees to achieve pollination. Bumblebees are usually a very distinctive black and yellow color, although they can be red and black or orange and black. Hmm. Now, I'm going to be on the lookout for this because I don't see, if I've seen them, I didn't recognize them as a bumblebee. They also look fuzzy. I've seen red and black. But orange or black sounds very Halloweenish, and very fun. It does, yeah. They do. I should get a bunch of those and release them around <laughs> yeah. my house at yeah. Halloween. That's right, orange and black bumblebees. Um, and then Sydney, you can come over and we can have a fun Enjoy Halloween them. party. Yeah. Interestingly, bumblebees are 
some of the earliest and latest bees. So you may find bumblebees into November, depending on where you live. The female worker bumblebee has a stinger and is capable of stinging, although they are a non-aggressive bee, so they mm -hmm. will not seek you out to sting you. I'm generally, Sydney. Sydney. Generally, bees are <laughs> not super aggressive. What do you think about that, Sid? Easy for you to say. <laughs> you don't get chased around houses by them. A male bumblebee has no stinger, so it actually cannot sting. With its stinger, but not necessarily with with its words. That's true. Okay. It, could, it, it could, could hurt with its words. It could words. hurt you in other ways. That's right. So bumblebees are the only bees native to North America that are truly social. They live in colonies, have different divisions of labor or castes, have overlapping generations, usually with multiple broods throughout the spring, summer, and fall. The bumblebee colony has an annual life cycle. So at the end of the summer, the initial queen, her workers, and male offspring will all die, and only the newly emerged fertilized queens survive to hibernate through the winter. Do they just die on their own? Yes. Or is there like an elaborate ceremony in which... You said they're like, social. How, I'm how thinking complex this, is this society? I'm thinking there's like a cookout or something for these social yeah, bees. But you're mentioning like they have a caste system and... Yeah. What about it's all that? very elaborate. Wow, okay. This, this seems like it should be a book. They have... Like the, a children's book. The ritual of <laughs> the death of the queen and her followers. That sounds apparently. like a really sad ritual. Probably thrown off a volcano somewhere. Right, yeah. Okay, now you're getting into Aztecs. <laughs> or it's like the uh, the old like Norwegian practice of when you were old, you'd throw yourself off a cliff. That's wow, right. all right. I assume the bee does something similar. Yeah, you can assume that. <laughs> until proven, I wouldn't, I wouldn't encourage other people to make that assumption. Otherwise, <laughs> so um, the new fertilized queen, after she hibernates through the winter, she survives the winter. In the spring, she will found a new nest that eventually, hopefully, will grow. And depending on the species and available resources, they can grow to fifty to four hundred or five hundred individual bees. The bumblebees need a cavity to build their nests. And abandoned rodent holes in the ground is a favorite as this space is already warm and lined with fur. And they are they tend to be a ground nesting bee. However, they will they will also nest in hollows of trees if they find them or abandoned bird's nests. I don't think that's going to mm -hmm. get them very far in abandoned bird nests. Though. Oh no, that's easy pickings. But it had to be a big one if they want to get to like four, six hundred. Like eagle's room. nest, yeah. <laughs> okay. Mom just uh, she just paused and like gave like down how big? Like what kind of bird would give you a big enough? Um... Yeah, like an like an ostrich nest. <laughs> Do ostriches make nests? Okay, that we're getting, we're digressing. All right, so the queen creates the first few brood cells from wax, then provides them with pollen and nectar and lazy eggs. It takes about four to five weeks for her first eggs to emerge as adult bees. These bees then become the workers and they take on the task of foraging and helping the queen tend to the growing number of brood cells. So this just keeps this just keeps growing See, and this is how it, when you it say, escalates. When you say brood cells, that just sounds like something from like an alien invasion. It does. Way. Yeah, it does. It's like we have to stop the brood cells. <laughs> That's right. Except you don't have to with these. Depending on the role in the nest, workers may live for one to two months, by which time there will be more workers to replace them. The queen will continue to lay eggs and the colony will grow steadily throughout the summer. At the end of the summer... And actually, it can be later than at the end of the summer because they do, they do end up um, living longer than uh, a lot of bees, as I said earlier, that can go into the fall. So the new queens and drones will emerge and mate, and then the new queen has to find a place to hibernate for the winter. So that's the cycle of how the bumblebee exists. Since they're active for so many months, they must be able to forage on a wide range of plant species and a wide range of weather conditions to be able to support the colony. When foraging, the female bumblebee carries 
pollen in a concave hairless area surrounded by stiff hairs on her rear legs known as the pollen basket. And you may have seen this. You may have seen this if you've seen um, bumblebees. The basket can be seen clearly when it's empty, but when it's full, it looks like a big pollen ball on the back legs of the female bumblebee. They are able to fly in cool temperatures and lower light levels than many other bees, and they perform a behavior called buzz pollination, in which the bee grabs the pollen-producing structure of the flower in her jaw and vibrates her wings, causing a dislodging of the pollen that would have otherwise remained trapped in the flower. So that, that buzzing, that telltale buzzing is also another indicator of the bumblebee. It's funny because I read, well, I'm going to give you, I'm now going to go on to give you some different... Bumble facts? Some different bumble facts, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good way to put it. Okay, so they're, as I said before, they're a non-aggressive species of bee. So if you're out and you see them and one is buzzing, just back away. You might be near a nest and they won't sting you unless they have to. The female bumblebee can and will sting when threatened, however. Bumblebees can sting multiple times, unlike a honeybee, because the stinger is smooth and does not come away when it's used. So you can be stung many times. The male, as I said before, is unable to sting. It has a yellow face with a white dot on its head, and the female has a black face. So, a bee with a white dot on its head is after you. You really don't need to worry about it. It's a male. It can't sting you, but it is trying to get you away from the area. And that's something that I grew up knowing. My mom always said, if a bumblebee has a white dot on its head, it's not going to be able to sting you. Um, but if it doesn't, you better get out of there. I don't know that she said that part. <laughs> <laughs> better get out, better get out of there, Beth. All right. The bumblebees are a type of ground bee, building their nest in the soil underground. It is constructed with wax and pollen and ends up being the size of a small coconut, which is interesting. That's nuts. <laughs> it's coconuts. The bees insulate the nest with animal fur or other plant matter. As I said before, there are bumblebee colonies. They live in small colonies, usually numbering between 5 and 400 to 500 bees. This is tiny compared to the honeybee colonies, which can number in the multiple tens of thousands of bees. Yeah, I think that's because those are like what you think when you think of bees, like bees' yes. nests, because they're the ones that build their hives and everything, too. Right, yeah. exactly. Like honeybees, bumblebees have a queen. She starts the hive and raises up the first worker bees. She alone lays the eggs and produces a hormone which stops other females in the nest from reproducing. Amazing. She can also say, as a result, I brought this hive into the world and I can take it out. True. If you want another little saying in there. Yeah. 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 Amazingly, the queen controls the sex of the eggs that she lays. She can choose to lay unfertilized eggs, which will result in female offspring, or she can choose to fertilize eggs with stored sperm to create male offspring. The male bumblebee's main purpose of existence is to mate with female bees. They leave the nest as soon as they can fly and they live short lives, so. Sorry, male bumblebees. Bumblebees do make their own type of honey. However, it is unsuitable for human consumption. Mm. Bears, on the other hand, do eat bumblebee honey and will dig up a hive to get at it. These bees are fairly fast, but they aren't going to be breaking any records. And it says it works out to be between 6 to 10 miles per hour. I'm like, that's pretty fast. For a bee, I mean, it's a pretty little thing. Yeah. No wonder Sydney's a little concerned. The bumblebees are, of course, well known for their hum they create when flying. And it said... They were first named, and I didn't, I didn't verify this. I didn't look this up, but I thought it was really funny. They were first named humblebees for this reason, like they were that hum. So I don't, I'm not verifying that. I didn't know. I don't know if that's true, but it's funny if it was. It was went from a humblebee to a bumblebee. They have four wings, which can beat approximately 200 times per second, which produces that hum. And last little fun fact is. There are no bumblebees on the Australian mainland. 
So I don't know why that was a fun fact. But <laughs> since it was in there, I thought, hey, I would share it. If you're listening to this from Australia, apparently bumblebees are not wanted and sightings should be reported to the appropriate Aussie authorities. Wow. Of all the creatures that aren't wanted in Australia. Right. They're not aggressive enough. Yeah. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that's right. They don't belong in Australia. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing about the adorable bumblebee. You're welcome. Fun little things. Our future festivities are for the week of August 2nd. August 2nd is National Ice Cream Sandwich Day. August 3rd is National Night Out. August 4th is National Chocolate Chip Cookie Day. August 5th is National Work Like a Dog Day. August 6th is National Root Beer Float Day, which I love. You do. Awesome. August 7th, National Lighthouse Day. And August 8th, National Happiness Happens Day. You can always follow us on social media. We are at, on Twitter at Holiday underscore Moons. On Instagram at Holiday Moons. And you can find us on Facebook by searching Holiday Moons in the Facebook search bar. We have a, a Facebook group and a Facebook page. And you can email us at any time at HolidayMoons at gmail.com. So for Randy... Sydney. Cole. And Beth. Happy, Happy summer! summer.